We were, we were working on the future of work and the future of small business. And somebody said, you ought to go look at this place called the Hat Factory. And I thought, well, that's interesting, a new hat company in San Francisco. <laughs> so I said, that, that'd be worth seeing. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of artisanal manufacturers in San Francisco. So I thought I was going to be literally visiting a hat factory. And when I got there, it was a little co-working space. What is up, my friends? Welcome back to another episode of the Coworking Weekly Show. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman. And although some people would say that today's episode number 13 is an unlucky number, I got to say, I think we've got a very, very lucky episode in store for us. You heard Steve King from Emergent Research in the opening, and you're going to be hearing a whole lot more from him in the rest of this episode. For those of you that were at the Juicy Conference in Berkeley this past week, you heard about the hat factory that Steve was talking about in this intro during Brad Newberg's introduction to the history of co-working from the point of view of the guy who created it himself. And although I wasn't able to be there, I was able to watch Brad's talk later. And man, there was so much great stuff in there that I'm so glad he was able to share. And I'm hoping that we're able to get Brad on the show in the future. But in the meantime, we've got an amazing conversation with Steve. Steve is a partner in a research company that has participated in nearly every co-working conference that I've been to. And the data that Emergent Research provides year over year has really supported the growth and understanding of growth in the co-working industry, which is why I'm so excited to have him here on the show. In fact, it was last year at the Juicy Conference in Kansas City that Steve got on stage and showed the projections that by 2018, we're expecting to see over a million people working in co-working spaces around the world. And since then, he and I have actually spoken, and he said those numbers are likely to be accelerating, especially with countries like Asia and India getting more involved in the co-working world. Really exciting stuff, and Steve's perspective is always worth listening to. But before we start the interview, I've got one bit of exciting housekeeping that I've just been bottling up since last week's episode and so excited to share with you, and that is if you live in or near Boston, New York City, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Chicago, or Miami... We've got a chance to work together, which is really, really exciting to be able to hit this many cities in such a short period of time. This is a brand new workshop series that Adam and I are teaching together. If you want to find out what it's all about, you got to head over to coworkingweekly.com slash tour to see everything we're covering as well as which dates we're going to be in which cities. And best of all, I'm able to offer you tickets to these workshops starting at just $89 a person and it goes down from there. And I've got to give big props to my new friends at the Global Workspace Association, especially Bill Jacobson from Work Bar in Boston, who's put in a ton of work to make this tour possible. And we definitely could not be doing it without them and all of their local partners. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But I've got just one more special gift before this commercial is over, and that is a special coupon code for you loyal listeners of the Coworking Weekly Show and our subscribers as well. And so when you check out with your ticket for these co-working workshops in a city near you, you can actually save 20 bucks off the $89 price ticket, get you down to 69 bucks. You just got to put in the coupon code Alex when you check out and it'll save you a few extra dollars. You still get the entire experience and I guarantee it's going to be a great time. 69 bucks. That's three hours with Adam and I and you can get your tickets over at coworkingweekly.com slash tour. That's more than enough commercial for this episode. I want to get into this conversation with Steve King because it's super relevant to everything we're going to be talking about on this tour. So why don't we jump right in and hear what Steve has to say. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'll see you on the other side. Before we even get in, I'd love to have you introduce who you are and, and what Emergent Research is. So I'm Steve King. You know that. Emergent Research, I'm a partner at Emergent Research, and we basically study the intersection of small business and the future of work. And that's where our interest in co-working came in, was we viewed co-working years ago as a good window on the future of work. That a, lot of the, a lot of the work patterns, approaches, styles, all kind of fit what we believed we were going to see more broadly in the economy in the future. So that's basically who we are. Our clients, in terms of who we work for, we work for large corporations that are interested in sort of better understanding this sector, as well as government agencies and some foundations that are trying to promote employment and small business employment, economic development. So that's who we are. And one of the things that's always been interesting to me about at least the lens into your research that I generally see is there's a lot of focus on the I guess the, the population more so than the industry. There's a lot of focus on the people, who they are, what they're doing. When you say you focus on this sort of small business and future of work, who is it that you're actually studying? Well, we, we study both 
the broad small business sector is one of our, our areas. And so those are companies, the, the Small Business Administration of the U.S. government defines those as companies with fewer than 500 employees. Um, so you can get a pretty big company still considered small business. But our primary focus is on very small businesses, um, businesses with less than 10 employees, micro businesses with less than four employees. And then, of course, we do a lot of work looking at solopreneurs, people that are working on their own, uh, independent workers, freelancers, independent consultants, independent contractors, etc. So we spend almost all of our time studying those groups of people and businesses um, in one form or another. The kinds of things that you're, you're, you've been pulling out over the years and sort of my exposure to your work has been through an annual co-working related report. That, that's actually extracted from a broader set of research. We do a, a larger annual study, a census and profiling of independent workers, uh, and that's called the MBO Partners State of Independence Report. And we do that in partnership with our sponsor, MBO Partners. And so that, uh, looks at the totality of the independent worker market in the United States, and we we size it uh, a census, but we also do a lot of work looking at their people's, how satisfied they are being independents, what they think about it, whether they're going to continue or not. Um, We also study people who aren't independent workers who and ask them questions about whether or not what they think of independent work and whether or not they think they may become independent workers in the next two to five years. And so um, it's a broad national survey. And out of that, you get some co-working information along the way. We ask a few co-working questions to see how many people are co-working and, and try to get a cut at it from that direction. But in addition to that work, we do a lot of other work that touches on co-working, and sometimes it's very specific to co-working. So, for example, right now we're doing a, a survey of co-working members that's focused on um, their networking and their use of co-working facilities in terms of their social lives. So, so we also do very specific work looking at co-working in addition to this general work. Steve, what was your first exposure to co-working? Since this sort of, sounds like you came in through the broader research of independent, where, like where did you first connect? You know, I'm I'm trying to remember exactly who it was that called me, and I, and I really don't remember. But it was it was around 2007, and there was a place called the Hat Factory in San Francisco. And at the time, we were we were working on the future of work and the future of small business, and. A lot. I'm based out here in San Francisco, and and so we are often visiting startups and tech startups and such. And somebody said, "You ought to go look at this place called the Hat Factory." And I thought, "Well, that's interesting—a new hat company in San Francisco." <laughs> so I said, "That that'd be worth seeing." We have a lot of we have a lot of artisanal manufacturers in San Francisco, so I thought I was going to be literally visiting a hat factory. And when I got there, it was a little co-working space inside someone's house, basically. Um, and so uh, that was my first introduction to it. And at that time, I, I don't think there were more than six or eight co-working spaces in the entire U.S. of, of that definition. And so we actually um, spent some time looking at it, and, uh, and we liked it. And we realized, wow, this, this could be really interesting. And, and so we decided to track it. What were some of the earliest things that stood out to you as, and you said you saw it, you liked it. What were some of the the, the early things? Because you look at you, you're you're a trend watcher by trade, right? You're looking at big picture patterns year over year. Was there something about it that you're like this fits a pattern we already noticed, or was this establishing something new? Actually, it, it fits something we'd already noticed and we'd already been thinking about, which was by 2007 we had already sort of published multiple analyses saying that the number of independent workers in, in America was going to grow. Now, this is no, this was no great insight on our part. That was published in the 1980s in the book Megatrends. And of course, the book Free Agent Nation was published in 1999. So, so by 2007, figuring out, hey, this may actually happen, didn't take a lot of trends spotting insight on our part. But, but it points to an interesting thing about trends, which is many times they take a very long time to come in to, to the mainstream. And, and in our business, we actually say they, 
they're a lot like show business in the sense that it can take many years to become an overnight success. And that is simply that by the time most people say, hey, wow, that's new, it's actually been percolating for many years. And co-working, kind of, the, the, the shift to independent work certainly followed that pattern in the sense that it was spotted in the 80s, even before that in, in other literature, explained as a huge phenomenon in the 90s with a best-selling book called Free Agent Nation that actually did not come true, at least in the time frame that Daniel Pink originally stated. And then we saw it in 2007. And we were talking a lot to independent workers, and they were all kind of telling us the same thing, which is it's lonely working at home. It's not a lot of fun working at a coffee shop. Um, we don't have any place to work. And so we'd been hearing that, and then all of a sudden we saw the hat factory. And we went, bingo, a place for independent workers to work and not be lonely and not be in a coffee shop and also potentially, you know, work on their business together. And so it really hit with what we were hearing at the time from independent workers. And we said, this thing will probably take off. And it, it didn't take even then much imagination to say, and this would be a great place for startups. This would be a great place for remote workers from large businesses. This would be a great place for people traveling. And so it, it really didn't take much imagination to, to take it from there to where it is today. Before we get into those other audiences that are, I agree with you aren't that much of a leap, I'd love for you to describe a little bit about what independent workers are. What is what is that definition? It sounds like an industry definition to me versus I think people think of independent as, as more of like a worldview-based thing, but it sounds like there's something very concrete that you guys use to qualify this. Yeah, we, we define independent workers as basically as people who have some sort of work relationship with the people that pay them that's, that's different than traditional employment. And when we get to those more specifics about that, to us, independent workers comprise an, an people that think that way. And so we define them more psychographically than we do in, in any other form. And when we've cut through our data and we've done zillions of interviews, um, the people that fit that, that thinking, meaning I'm on my own, I realize I don't have uh, traditional benefits, I don't have the traditional job security of a, uh, that comes with a traditional job and so forth, you find a whole group of people, certainly people that consider themselves self-employed, and freelancers, independent consultants, independent contractors of all kinds. But there's some other folks also, um, on-call workers, that vary their schedules quite a bit day-to-day -day or week-to-week. -week. You can think about substitute teachers, but there's a growing number, or on-call, but there's a growing number of on-call workers in all fields, particularly retail, wholesaling, and in industrial sites. Um, we also consider anybody that has a fixed-term contract employment of less than a year. And so I might ha be just with one company for six months, but and I also might be officially an employee, a W-2 employee, but I might have my contract that runs out. That group is small in the United States compared to a lot of other countries, but is growing very, very rapidly. More and more firms are choosing um, some form of fixed term contract my my son, who I mentioned was in is in India right now, works for one of the major strategy consulting firms, and his contract's running out this summer he 's been with them three years, and so he was on a longer term contract originally, but his contract's running out, and um, they offered him an extension, but he 's choosing to do something else and so we're seeing it in consulting, we're seeing it in finance, it's always been pretty big in entertainment. So across, when you sum across all of those categories, you get what we consider to be independent workers. Sorry, it's a long explanation. It's it's long, but I think it's it's good and it's complete. And one of the things that always stands out to me is, so you've got this element of, I mean, it's a trade-off, right? It's uh, freedom and flexibility comes with an element of volatility, and, and perhaps risk as well. And I'm, I'm wondering if if you have any insights into the different, some of the differences between the people who are actively choosing this independent work style. And I think I'm reading a lot more and I'm sure you've seen a whole lot more about people that are sort of being thrust into it, uh, un unwilling or less willingly. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, that the trade-off, and, and almost everybody goes through some sort of mental calculus in making this decision to become independent. And then they go through a mental calculus 
to make the decision to stay. The trade-off's really very simple. It's, it is security and predictability, relatively speaking, compared to autonomy, flexibility, and control. And so historically, the people, the, the, the mental heuristics and the math weighed heavily towards traditional employment. When he actually summed it up, it didn't, the only reason it made sense to go independent was if you were the type of person that really wanted to be your own boss, you really wanted the freedom and flexibility to do that, and you really didn't want to work for somebody else. And, and that's a broad spectrum of people who fit that bill, but it's actually a real, and, and because of that, you're willing to accept the, the lack of predictability and the risk associated with independent work. And that's a, that's a relatively small group of people, probably no more than 15 to 20% of the American public really would make that choice on their own. And traditionally, we have a long tradition in the self-employment statistics of being 10% of Americans at any point in time, sort of traditionally defined. And I think that's an economic truism. I think there's about 10 to 15% of Americans that are willing to make that trade-off on their own. Now, what's happened in the last decade is, and it started before that, but it's really accelerated in the last decade, is that mental math has changed because traditional employment's gotten less attractive. Companies have cut benefits. Job security's been cut quite a bit. The amount of work that you're expected to do in many cases has gone up. And so the advantages of being a traditional employee have gotten less strong, and that's moved more people into the camp of being willing to be independent. And so now maybe instead of 10 to 15% like it was historically, it's up to maybe 15 to 20 or even 25%. And so that's the mental mass shift. And as I said, it's all around, are you willing to deal with a lack of predictable income? And in general, the volatility that comes with independent work and and the risk, the risk meaning that you, you may not be able to pay for things that you want to versus the stability of jobs. Now, particularly since the recession, lots of people have been pushed into this in, in an involuntary manner. Um, they, they, they basically have no alternative but to be independent. There's no other source of income or work. And when you look at that group, most of that group is, are not happy with it. Um, they, they have a tendency to want to go back to traditional employment. And so there is a large chunk of that group that gets pushed, forced into it, and they say, oh, my gosh, I really like this. And so the numbers are moving up and the people who like it are moving up. But boy, when, when we do any analysis, survey or interview, we ask people, did you choose this or did you not choose this? If they told us they didn't choose it, um, if the people who tell us that they didn't choose it are about 25 to 30 percent of all independent workers who say I was actually, you know, I didn't have a choice, had to go do this. That group, usually around 60 percent of them don't like it. And so one of the biggest indicators of whether or not people like it and successful is choice, of course. And that, that makes perfectly good sense. It is an interesting problem going forward for our economy um, because we're projecting more and more work to become independent. Companies are telling us they're going to hire more and more independent workers. And so more and more people who frankly don't want to be independent are going to still be independent. And so that, that's one of the challenges that we have going. And the raging debates around Uber drivers and task rabbits and so forth, that's all part of that. There's a group of people there that love it, and but there's a group of people there that would rather have a traditional job. And that's become kind of the, the focal point of a lot of legal action to try to define this better. There's two things in what you just said that I, I think are really interesting to draw back into a co-working specific realm. One of them is sort of intentionally separating that there's the mental math, like you said, the choice to try it, whether that be being an independent or joining a co-working space. And there's another equation of, is this worth continuing to do? Is this satisfying and supporting me in the way that I wanted to? And also perhaps I think you need to separate that because there's things that you couldn't calculate ahead of time until you, after you've experienced it. So for, for folks that are creating co-working communities, really thinking about how your members are going through this in their own careers and as potential members of your community. They've got to have already made the decision to try it. And then there's another decision of, do I want to continue doing it? That second one is one that I think is a big blind spot for a lot of people. The other thing 
about what you said related to choice. And this is where I'd like to turn just a little bit around the corner into startups and then maybe a little bit about teams as well and the difference between all of those dynamics in general and then related to co-working. What happens when uh, a team is placed in a co-working space by the decision of one or two people and then everyone else is there? What's the difference between the per- it's sort of like this hybrid model where someone is independently able to make that decision, but the rest of the team, they're there because they're employed. Uh, so if you were to survey uh, within the broader category of people in co-working spaces, let's take a look at startups for a second. The difference between people who maybe own, operate the team versus the team members. Are there any differences between what kind of data you get from them? Well, what, what you it's interesting. What you hear varies a lot depending upon how the startup is organized within the co-working space. We often see them together in, a, in, a, in an office setting. They, they've got a team office, four or five people. Those folks tend to respond the same way in, in interviews and surveys and think about it the same way because they're having the exact same experience. And so they may like it or dislike it as individuals, but it is their workplace. They're all doing it the same way. They're, it's consistent in terms of what they're facing. And so they kind of say the same things. Someone, one of the team members would say, gee, I wish we were in a more traditional setting. I wish we were, I was in a more traditional office. But in general, they kind of say, nah, but that's the way it is. I knew that when I signed up. I'm happy with it. Right. Where you get some interesting distinctions is when one group of people is in one type of facility and the other group is in, in the other. And so the classic example of that is a couple bosses are in a private office and then their team is actually in the bullpen of open spaces with everybody else. That seems based on our work, and, and we ha- we don't see it enough that I can sort of say this with statistical certainty, but that's where we see the most dissatisfaction. Because you have, it's sort of like, wait a second, this is two-tiered, I'm out here, they're in there, I'm not sure I like being out here. The other place where that comes in is when you have the team room, but then the company's grown so much that they spill over into the into another area that takes managing and from a from an owner standpoint or whoever the startup lead is you know that that's a interpersonal thing where they have to make sure they're making it clear to the people that aren't directly connected that they're not out of touch i find one of the most fascinating things about our research these days is that everyone talks about location not mattering and location matters even more today than it ever did before and and both are happening at the same time you would think with all our communications and people using different kinds of products and, and messaging and phones and everything else, you can work thousands of miles away. But if we interview someone who's 10 feet away and there's a wall in between, they notice it. And so it's a really interesting world. Um, so that so when startups are in spaces, we think they work best when the entire startup is together in the same type of space, co-located, as opposed to strewn about. A facility. That's probably the biggest difference we notice. Interesting, because one of the things that I've I've seen a lot of tension and stress in that realm as well. I think a, a lot of it comes from a desire, as you've said before, to sort of replicate something that feels like what we're used to. Um, mm-hmm. I'm used to being in close proximity to my team, having access to the people that are above me, below me, like knowing where everybody is, and sort of having a set of expectations. What's interesting though is that. Those teams also tend to get the least from the co-working experience because they spend the most time really just with each other. It, they get all the benefits of flexible workspace as a company and the ability to you know add new team members without necessarily having to sign a new lease and, and all of those sorts of things. But those team members, they don't interact with many people outside of their own team. And we saw this really interesting thing happen with a uh, – it's a Silicon Valley-based startup that – as they do this sort of the city launching process, which a lot of people have now started to see when a startup takes over city by city by city. They've mm-hmm. got these city launchers, they go into a city. Co-working spaces are a great touchdown point for them because they can come in, they can find a spot, they can drop their stuff, they can get right to work. And they also don't have to sign a long-term lease because they don't know exactly how that city launch is going to go. If it goes successfully, they'll hire some people, leave them in that space and move on to the next city. Mm-hmm. And we saw this really interesting thing happen with this company where the this team of two who came in as city launchers to do their thing <laughs> did what 
we see teams do all the time, which is they come in and they sit next to each other and they only talk to each other and they only work with each other and they only go to lunch with each other and they don't interact with anybody else in the co-working space, which has always begged the question to me, why are you in a co-working space if you don't intend to work with any, not even work with, but interact with, don't even talk to anybody else. And so I asked them, I was like, well, why do you like being here? And they said, well, we like being around the other people. And I said, well, I'm sure they like being around you too. But the two of you only, only ever being around each other doesn't leave a lot of room for the other people here to get to know you or even know your company or any of those things. So when time came for them to go from day passes to uh, they wanted full-time desks, I was like, you know, what? hold the phone. What if, what if we do a little experiment here? Because I've noticed that you guys really are sort of attached at the hip. What if for just the first 30 days, if you guys are going to get full-time spots, what if the full-time spots are not next to each other? What if you're in different parts of the office? And obviously there's places for you to come together when you do need to be side by side, get work done. I don't want to inhibit your productivity, but I do want to make sure you're getting as much as you can out of being here versus you could rent any other office. And because it was, again, I proposed it as an experiment. I said, give this 30 days. If it's totally breaking your workflow, we can change it. But I'd like to see you try this because it's a little bit different from what you're, what you're used to. And at the end of their launch cycle or their launch process, and they'd hired a couple of new team members and they were getting ready to leave and move on to the next city. One of the team members would come up to me and he goes, you know, this has been a really great experience. This has been one of our, our favorite launches so far. And I think a big part of it's because of that little push you gave us to not always sit next to each other. It seemed a little bit weird, but if we hadn't done it, we wouldn't have gotten to know the people here in the city. We wouldn't have been as connected to it. And ultimately we're here for a relatively short period of time. And it's in our best interest to take advantage of all of the ways that we can to get better connected in the city because it's going to help the launch be better. And I think that there's there's a role for there's, there's two groups of people here that, that I think need to learn a lesson. One is the co-working space operators and that realizing that people do have a set of norms and expectations that are largely rooted in traditional employment and patterns and habits. And it's not that they're inherently bad, but they may not, not, may not be as productive as they could be. And you need to sort of help the teams that are in your co-working space learn a new way uh, and perhaps learn that together. And then the other group of people that need to learn a lesson are the, the managers, the teams, the, the decision makers that that are, are running teams and co-working spaces and say, if we're in a co-working space, is it just for flexible co-location or is there something more valuable to our business, to our productivity, to our connection, to where whoever our clients are, to the city, whatever it is. If the only value we're getting out of this is flexible, low cost, low commitment workspace. Well, what if there's, what if there's actually more, what if we could get the same sorts of things out of this, that the individuals that are here do and be able to experiment enough to actually have this improve your business. So what was really cool about this company was at the end, like I said, he said, this is going to change the way we approach every city moving forward. Every new city, every co-working space we go to, hmm. we're going to intentionally, we're going to spend time together, of course, but we're going to separate because we realize that it makes a huge difference in how other people in the co-working space perceive us and how us being connected to them made the launch go better. We were able to hit our marks better and faster. The expectations that our employer has of us, we were able to do better with the support of the other members of the co-working space, oh, okay. which I thought was really, really interesting. So nice. I think startups can, can work very, very well with the caveat that being open to being open to breaking some of those mold, hard molded galvanized corporate laden habits could actually be to the benefit of your team and your business. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and, and you see, I agree, you see a lot of startups in co-working spaces that isolate themselves. And part of that's the startup experience. You know, the startup experience is for many of it, many people, it's a heads down, all encompassing, all absorbing experience. It takes everything. And so you do have to break those habits to, to get out of it and, and make sure you spend some time because Definitely interacting with others is going gonna, is gonna to give you different insights, different perspectives, and a lot of advantages. For startups in particular, and I think people working in startups, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, particularly since it's interesting, a lot of startup CEOs sort of set up an us versus them 
culture where we're going to, you know, we're going to conquer the world or we're going to defeat the big evil empire or something along those lines. But that culture that's fairly typical in the startup world is around not actually not interacting as much with other people. And, and it's not, in, it's not stated. It's just part of the us versus them style that startups often take. Yeah, I agree. Well, and my, my line has been that co-working can be a very powerful tool for startups, but startups are often really terrible for co-working spaces. And I think a lot, a lot of it comes from that mentality um, in an environment where you need people to be actually looking out for each other because that's what they're there to serve. Uh, that can that can detract from that. But I want to turn the corner once again. So we've got this sort of third angle mm-hmm. of the, the audience that you survey, which is the, the remote employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a couple of guys, uh, actually, I think you had connected me to the guys from Michigan. Oh, from okay. Michigan. Yep. They were yep. on a couple of episodes ago and shared some really amazing insights about uh, about some of the things that they'd extracted. And it sounds like the next stage of their research, they want to be focusing very much on the some of the detailed aspects of being employed remotely in a co-working space. So I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the big insights you've seen related to that shift? People working uh, working using remote technology or offices, downsizing their physical presence and relocating to co-working spaces. What are the big trends in related to future of work and remote employment? Yeah, it'll be interesting. The Michigan guys, um, their work is pretty interesting and I'm really looking forward to seeing it because they really are focused in specifically on this and they're trying to understand sort of the productivity differences and lifestyle differences. It's, it should be great work. So, so it's, it's fun to follow their work. A couple of interesting things to me about, about sort of remote workers in co-working. One of them is it's not happening as fast as we expected. There aren't as many people from large organizations using co-working facilities as we thought there might be. And, and there is still a trend towards it happening and it kind of, you know, chunks along every year and increases a little bit. But I, but I think there are a, a number of, of inhibitors that, that, have, that have kept it from taking off. Um, location being a little bit of one of them, people just trying to, budgets continue to be an issue. A lot of corporate policies are still set against it. Those shifts, those cultural shifts within corporations aren't moving as quickly as we thought they might, particularly around the concerns about security or, or legal issues and so forth. So so the one of the things that's hit us is it's the larger company employee is not using co-working as much as we anticipated. And we're trying to figure that out right now. They're using it more, but not as much. More broadly, in terms of remote work, remote work is obviously growing very, very rapidly. And and despite what you see in the public from Yahoo and Google that they don't have remote workers, what, what they don't have is full-time remote workers, or they have very few full-time remote workers. We're, we're at Google, and we're not so much Yahoo very often, but we're at Google all the time. We know the Google people. Um, they work from home all the time or they work remotely all the time. It's just they don't do it full time. They do it one day a week. They do it in the afternoon. They do it in the mornings. Uh, and that same thing is true at, at Yahoo. And so when you read in the press, there's no remote work. What it really is is we don't have full-time remote workers, but we give our workers workplace flexibility. If they don't need to be in the office, if they can Skype in, for example, we allow them to do that if they're on tele. And so that kind of remote work, part-time remote work, work flexibility remote work, is growing extremely rapidly. And because it's not full-time remote work, so much of our statistics and so many of the agencies that track this aren't seeing it to the same degree. It's sort of obvious to me why companies would provide it as a benefit effectively. Do you have insights into why people are choosing? You know, why why would people, besides the obvious of I don't want to go into work, but they still have to do work, why would people choose to work not at their office one day a week, two days a week, three days a week? What does that look like? It, it's, it's primarily sort of a work-life flexibility issue. They've, they they want to avoid commutes. Um, they want to end the day early. Um, they want some flexibility. They want to have a day where they can, you know, drop their laundry off at the laundromat. Well, it's not laundromats don't really exist anymore, but at the, at the cleaners, um, they, they want, they want that kind of flexibility. It might be the day they volunteer at their kid's school. Um, it might be the day that they're 
they have some some uh, other activity that they want to pursue. A lot of it is avoiding traffic, avoiding commuting. A lot of people leave early for that reason. I, I honestly think you could, if terrorists ever strike in Silicon Valley, they shouldn't do it on a Friday afternoon because there's nobody there. Um, everybody's <laughs> gone home. So... So they should. So I, I shouldn't give terrorist advice on these shows, but but the reality is, <laughs> on Friday, you know, Friday traffic in Silicon Valley is horrendous, and so and and so it's not as bad as it should be because a lot of people are leaving early, and and you know, you get home and you and and people are working into the nights in today's world, checking email, doing different things, and so it's it's more around just organizing your day so you can also get in your life and. And that's mostly what people do when they when they work from home for a day, or they go home early, or they work from home in the morning. You you see that pretty regularly. The other thing that the other place where this happens, and it's just absolutely hysterical to us, I it, you hear this all the time. I'm going to work from home because I got to get something done. People just constantly tell us you can't get anything done if you're at the office because you're in meetings, you're, you're interrupted. So I don't know. I, constantly in our interviews we ask people why are you working from home and they say oh i i've got a project i've got to get done and i always laugh about it you have to go home to actually work it doesn't doesn't necessarily make sense i've got to leave the office and the shift that's happening within offices more and more people have cubicles more and more people have or even less space than that the amount of space they have in the office is declining and so a lot of times they actually even leave their little cubicles and go find some place on campus or even off campus you go to a coffee shop near any large corporation and it's packed with people that have free coffee. They just they just need to get away. They need to get a table where they won't be bothered. So there's a lot of different reasons why people do it, but but it's definitely growing at a rapid rate, especially, you know, especially among knowledge workers obviously. But even people who are not in traditional knowledge workers sort of tell us the same story if they're given that kind of flexibility. A lot of them aren't. It's so interesting to think about that Maybe it's like a bell curve of productivity where when I'm in a traditional office, it's very hard to be productive. So I go home to be productive. And then all of a sudden I hit another threshold where I can't be productive at home. And then I'm looking for one of these third place type environments, coffee shop, a co-working space so that I can be productive again. Uh, and I think it, it's interesting to think about the differences between like, obviously the office isn't the problem. The place isn't the problem. It's there's something with the the people, the structure, the expectations. Um, I, I imagine some of the emotions that come with needing to be in a place impacting the level of productivity. Uh, do you have any other sort of thoughts on on that that range? Yeah, I, in terms of, of of why we're productive and not productive in different places. Yeah, why? So, like, we've got people. So, if there's two different ranges, right? So, we've got people that leave a full time job's workplace to go home to be more productive, but at the same time, we have people that are leaving home to go to co working spaces to be productive. What's going on there? It's task specific, and so, and, and I think I think that's one of the more interesting pieces of all this. The people that, that are saying I got to go home because I got to be productive, they're just they're trying to do a heads down task and and not be bothered and get three or four solid hours where they're not going to be disturbed. And finding a place to do that in a traditional office these days is very very hard for a lot of people. So they say I'm going to go home to do that, but if they stay at home too long then they're going to face the issues that you have at home. It's pretty easy to say, I'm going to stay focused for the next three hours. But then after the three hours, if you got to stay focused for four or five days in a row, suddenly, you know, I always use the example. For me, it's Gilligan's Island's reruns. You know, you go, they're, they're coming on at <laughs> two in the afternoon. I might want to take a break. But you also, you know, you have the laundry, you have the dogs, you have the kids, you have the distractions of home. We, 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 I, I, I think what's really funny in our research, we hear two things about working from home. I'm lonely and I'm distracted. Um, very, And sometimes to me, those are inconsistent because if you're distracted by the kids, if you're distracted by the dog, you're distracted by the neighbors, you shouldn't be all that lonely, but you still are. And so you hear those two things, distractions and loneliness. And so they kick in. And so people say, gosh, I need to, to work someplace else. So I think it's more around tasks and time. If you're full-time anywhere, you're now finding the disadvantages of that space. 
And so people are now choosing multiple spaces because they're saying, for this type of task, I need to be in this type of space. For another type of task, I need to be in another type of space. And if I have just one space for all my tasks, I run into all the disadvantages. I think that right there is key. And it's something that I, I mean, my team encourages new people who run in saying, I want a full-time spot. We say, you should probably try it out a couple days a week uh, to be in a co-working space before you go jump in full time. And the main reason if people want full time is, is often not even because they intend to be there full time. It's because they want a place that's already set up, ready to work, ready to go. I don't, I don't think we have that many full time members that are actually at Indie Hall from nine to five, five plus days a week. Uh, I just don't think it exists that way. And it's exactly what you described. Even me this morning, I got up, I went to a coffee shop near my house to take care of some email, get a couple of things ready for this conversation. I'm going to talk to you. And then when we're done, I'll go into Indie Hall for the second half of the day. That's most of my days. And I structure them that way. Going back to what, we were, what I was saying before about sort of breaking norms and habits, that's another big blind spot for a lot of people. When they think about choosing, they say, I'll get a co-working space when I need an office. And I say, well, what if you had a place you could go one day a week or every other week or once a month to, you know, power through a certain kind of, I think the way you frame it is it's task specific is right on the money. There's nobody really teaching people how to structure your own day and your own work around choosing a place that's appropriate for the task. So it'll be interesting to see, is that something that companies start training their employees to do because it'll be to their benefit because their employees are more productive and they, they don't burn out as quickly and things like that. There's this whole coaching industry out there that's that's very large of people who help people figure out their careers and figure out how to be more productive. And I've yet to hear anyone talk about this in that industry. But I do think eventually that industry is going to going to start to get into this because it is it is part of work. It's part of being productive. It's part of 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 improvement. Is to sort of optimize your space and how you use it and when you use it. But I haven't heard that out of the coaching industry yet. But the coaching industry is growing very rapidly. They're smart people. Um, I think it's just a matter of time. Very cool. Well, we're we're coming up on the end. I want to close out with a couple of questions, maybe a little bit big picture. Um, so you've been studying the future of work for a long time, and, and co-working specifically for we're coming up on uh, started in two thousand and seven. We're we're in year eight now. What has been one of the like, biggest surprises for you over the last eight years? Something that you did not expect to see, you did not expect to happen, or is that just not a reality in the life of Steve King because you're looking at patterns all the time? <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, two things. When, when you work at patterns and, and you do anything where you're forecasting the future, uh, two things come you're used to all the time. One, you're wrong all the time. <laughs> And, and two, you are surprised all the time and things go a different direction than you expect and, and so forth. I, I think one of the things, uh, one of the things that surprised me, I mentioned earlier was that, um, big companies have not embraced it to the same degree uh, in terms of remote working and traveling workers. I, I, I have been a little surprised how quickly the Corporate America, large chunks of it has been have been incorporating the concepts of co-working into their own campuses. And that shift has happened much faster than I thought it would. You know, changing real estate because it's a fixed asset takes many, many years. It takes planning. You got to think about it. You got to make the shift. It's, you know, office design is, is, is a very traditional industry. But if you go into almost any new office built in the last couple of years, if you're a co-working person, you'll say, wow, that looks familiar. I mean, it's just fascinating, all the buildings. We, we work with Intuit Corporation. They have a, they have a, a campus hub building that, that is, looks like a giant co-working space. What are some of the attributes that are, that are being modeled after co-working? You know, you know, a lot of the open space concepts are being modeled. A lot of the, the cozy nooks and crannies that many co-working facilities have for small meetings or for little groups to get together or for individuals on their own, that's showing up all over the place. Phone booth concepts are showing up all over the place. The sort of light and airiness of it showing up all over the place. It's it's really interesting to see. And when you actually, you know, in the, I don't follow the architectural literature 
uh, and design literature that much, but from when I talk to those folks, the people doing the corporate work now just consistently reference, well, you know, this is how we saw it done in this co-working facility. We hear that over and over again when you talk to those folks. So that's been interesting, the way corporations have gone after that. I also hadn't, when, I, when we first were working with this in terms of offices, um, we were aware of the maker movement and alternative collaborative spaces in other industries, but that's been happening a little faster and to a larger degree. Um, the first time I saw, I walked into um, BioCurious, which is a, a, a genetics slash biotech co-working facility, effectively. I was very surprised like, by that. It's like, wow, you know, who, who would have thought co-working would move to labs? Um, and when you start to think about the declining prices of things um, in general and how things are becoming more digitized, it's hard to imagine there won't be an industry, any industry that doesn't have co-working facilities at some point um, because of that. So that you can share the things that are more costly as well as share your interests. So there's been a bunch of different stuff that's, that's been interesting to me. That's great. And my last question is about, I mentioned blind spots a couple of times, misconceptions. Mm -hmm. People have either a, a short view or just a lack of information What's a common misconception that people have about I mean, any of these things? Co-working, independent workers, where, where, where are people wrong and you've got the data to prove it? On independent workers, very consistently we hear, oh, those are folks that lost their jobs and couldn't get jobs. And so the biggest places I think people are wrong is they don't understand. We call it the big three. Um, they chose to be independent in most cases. Well over half made that decision. They like it. You know, our satisfaction data shows 70 to 75 percent of the people telling us that they like being independent and that they're going to continue it. Um, a similar percentage say that they expect to still be independent five years from now. And it's not that they'll never have a traditional job if a right traditional job pops up, but that their plan is to stay independent. And so on the, on the independent worker side, those are the big misconceptions. And I think actually one of the biggest shifts we've seen since we've been studying it is 10 years ago, if you were an independent worker, you actually did have to kind of explain yourself to your friends and relatives. No, I'm not really unemployed. No, I'm not really in between jobs. No, no. And now the world is kind of getting used to independent workers. And also, um, people think it's cool. And so suddenly your neighbors, instead of saying, gosh, he's unemployed, your, their neighbors are saying, gosh, he has a lot of work flexibility, doesn't he? He gets to work from home. He gets to do all these different cool things. And so there's been a real shift in attitudes around that. But these myths, the, the big myths about being unemployed, not liking it, wanting a traditional job, those are the big ones on that side. The, the biggest myth on the co-working side is that it's all 25-year-old guys that don't take showers. Um, now, uh, I, I do agree that when you're talking about the 25-year-old guys in co-working spaces, a lot of them do need to take showers. But <laughs> but the average co-worker is, you know, you know, again, we're in the, the midst of another survey on this, but past surveys show, you know, on average, they're mid-30s. They're the, the, the female contribution, participation rate in co-working is going up quite a bit. You know, there, there's a real misconception and and actually, most of them aren't techies directly. You know, they're not programmers. And so this whole thing that co-working is just these programmer, 25-year-old male programmers that have that have recreated the frat. Um, we have a few of those the, the, the facilities like that. But but that's simply not true. That's the biggest misconception about co-working. And, and, I, and frankly, when people talk to me about co-working, they're like, I, I can't tell you how many times someone has said to me, I'm too old. And they're like, 40. I'm too old to be in a co-working facility. And I've had a lot of women tell me, I, you know, I'm not going to go into that kind of culture. Right. Um, so so those, that's the big misconception around who is the average member. Well, that's, that's very interesting. When you were talking about the sort of stigma of dissatisfaction related to independent work, it, w it was like just showing me how big of a, uh, of a bias I have. And like, maybe I just don't read that stuff. And other than, I mean, there's there's the, you know, the, like you mentioned Uber before and a lot of these, you know, task-based workers and, and frustrations related to that. But outside of that, it's just never really been in my field of vision nearly as much. People who are independent in, in my personal world are people who generally chose it and 
love it, but I, you know, do experience from time to time the people who are like, yeah, I mean, I make it work, but it's not my favorite. The the diversity aspect of co-working, I think, is something that as a as an industry, as a community, still needs a, a lot of work. And I'm very curious to see how, how it's approached. A lot of the approaches of, you know, creating co-working specifically for an underserved segment that doesn't want to go into these, these fratty style co-working spaces. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but I also don't think it actually solves the problem. I'd love to, to be seeing some things in the near future that are people actually trying to figure out what are the... What can we do consistently um, to to build better cultures that are more inclusive, more inviting? Because I think that's just it. Like we've never taken active steps to recruit more women or more artists or more scientists. But when we take active steps to be more open and invite more kinds of participation, we get more kinds of members. So, right. you know, at, at this point were almost 50-50 men and women, which I think is awesome. And the industries that are represented, it's easier for me to tell you who's not there than who is, including people that are are far from what, what you expect. You know, I think when people think about like co-working for lawyers, they assume that it would end up looking more like, you know, a Regis executive suite because lawyers all want privacy and and things like that. And the lawyers that work at Indy Hall, that's the last thing they want. That's too much right. like the firm they ran away from. Uh, and so I think it's, it merits more study and understanding the worldview of individuals. Just because you do a particular job or task doesn't really directly correlate to what you want from the experience. And then back to what you were saying before, it doesn't necessarily correlate to what you want all day, every day, five, six, seven days a week. For lawyers, one of the earliest co-working examples is the English concept of chambers, independent workers teaming up together in a shared facility, which goes back to the 15th century. Huh. Well, as always, Steve, it was great to catch up with you and to have uh, some of your insights to share with the co-working weekly listeners. Where can people find out more? I know you've got a website and you've got a newsletter where you guys, how do you, you pump out like an interesting article every day? Uh, three, three days a week. We're a three day a week group. Us, uh, our, 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 Blog is is uh, Small Biz Labs www.smallbizbizlabs.com and our website's emergentresearch.com. Awesome and Small Biz Labs is really great. The email newsletter, the the articles that come through. There's very few newsletters where I, I actively look forward to reading every one. Yours is absolutely one of them. So people should definitely check that out. Glad to hear that. Cool man. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again in the near future. Safe travels to India and be well. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Steve. Bye bye. So as it were, some of those misconceptions that Steve was talking about right there at the end is actually one of the prime topics of our workshop tour, which we've titled Smashing the Stereotypes about co-working and collaborative work. We're going to try and take all the stuff about big, open, funky workspaces and the young creative entrepreneurs and really pick that stuff apart and focusing on what makes co-working spaces actually succeed. So I'm just going to remind you of the link one more time at coworkingweekly.com slash tour and that code, since you're a co-working weekly show listener you when you check out on the eventbrite page you can use the code alex to save 20 bucks off the full price of the workshop in whichever city it is that you're able to join us in and if you do decide to sign up i'd love to hear about it so send me a message on twitter at alex hillman and let me know that i'm going to be coming to your city and that you're excited to be coming to the workshop that's it for this week i hope you have a great week and i will look forward to seeing you very very soon have a great one